That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 380 with my guest, Andy Richter. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin. This here podcast is called The Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's, uh, for those of you that are new to it, it's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Yeah, we are not the, we are not the solution. Uh, we're just here to remind you that you're not alone and maybe have a couple of chuckles along the way and, uh, Hopefully, through through some raw honesty, you will see that a lot more people feel the way you do than you think you do. They do. I just I just went down a grammatical rabbit hole, um, but it's really nice and cool down here. Uh, today, I was cognizant. I just wanted to use that word. I was aware of how often I tell myself in one form or another, you're not doing this right, no matter what it is that I'm doing. So about 10 minutes ago, I sat down. It's now what time? Uh, it's 11 o'clock at night. And I went through my day and thought, where where did I tell myself I wasn't doing things right? Well, <laughs> how about the second I opened my eyes? Uh, I told myself that I woke up too late and that I'm lazy. Uh, then, uh, a little while later, maybe 20 minutes, I told myself that I'm doing breakfast wrong, that I'm not eating healthy enough. Uh, then when I went to the gym, I told myself that I'm uh, skimping on my workout and I'm wasting my time and I'm lazy. Um... Somebody at the gym mentioned that cashew butter uh, is not, that, that cashews aren't as healthy as you think they are. I eat a shitload of cashew butter. Oh, yes, I should have known. I should have known the news would eventually reach me. 
You've been wasting your time, Paul. For those of you that aren't familiar, that's the, that's the sad shipping news. Uh, when I was put on hold, calling the company that ships, uh, cashew butter and, uh, what the fuck kind of music is that for somebody to hold? You are probably losing at least three people per day to suicide while they are on hold. Anyway, continuing. Um, so, yes, this person at the gym said, oh, no, cashews are a nightshade like tomatoes. Those are, those are not good for you. So then I go into the, well, I just bought eight jars of it. So obviously I'm an idiot and uh, now it's going to kill me. Uh, and of course the, the thought that immediately followed that was, and you're an idiot with money. You're irresponsible. Uh, went to my car and looked at it and thought your dented car is embarrassing. You don't know how to care for a car. The inside of it is dirty. Uh, you're a lazy pig. Um, then I had a nice stretch of a couple of hours. I had a cappuccino, worked on the show and, uh, was feeling good. Came home took a nap and told myself you're you're doing this instead of making yourself a healthy dinner and you know that's a failure uh went to my support group meeting 99% of it I always feel great but there's a little voice in my head that says but you're not being social enough to the people that really need someone to reach out to them you're failing them you know hence you're just too focused on yourself. So in reality, your recovery is a joke and you're just too dishonest to ever really see it. Um, and that brings me to now where the mean voice in my head is telling me that I have picked the wrong surveys and I'm slowly ruining the show. Welcome. Welcome. My name is Paul Gilmartin. Um, the website for our show, speaking of surveys, is mentalpod.com. And mentalpod is also a Twitter and Instagram handle you can you can follow me at. All right, I'm going to read some uh, struggle in a sentences. This is, it's one of the maybe dozen surveys we have that people fill out uh, anonymously and then we read on the show. Um, a guy who calls himself, insert witty survey name here, uh, writes about his anxiety. I'm a sentry guard on lookout for an enemy I won't recognize. About his codependency, how can I make you happy enough that you'll let me be happy? Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, Face Palm or Napalm writes about her depression. Life feels like an amusement park, walled off by a soundproof, dirty pane of glass I always have my nose and palms pressed against. Oh, that is such a good one. About having Asperger's. She writes, it's like a bad phone connection, except for every social interaction you have. And then a snapshot from her life. I'm single, and stuff like this has happened all my life. A guy started a conversation with me at a bookstore. He seemed genuinely nice, and I really wanted to chat with him. But I have a kind of mental lag with Asperger's, and it also gives me a bit of a flat effect and stoic look, especially when I'm nervous or caught off guard. So I just stared at him blankly. 
Not for creepily long, just longer than most people take to respond, while my mind raced for the right thing to say. I think he took that as a sign that either I wasn't interested or was being cold or just thought I wasn't, quote, all there. And he politely excused himself. This is so typical of my interactions with people. It's like I'm almost, I'm all, it's like I'm always missing trains by just seconds. By the time I get my bearings and notice I'm at the train station, the train takes off. It's the most frustrating kind of loneliness. Thank you for, for, uh, sharing that. That, uh, that really helped paint a picture, um, I've heard a lot of people fill out surveys um, or share about being on the spectrum, but that that one um, was really illuminating. Thank you for that. Uh, a guy who calls himself Traveling Still uh, describes his dysthymia. Life is like I'm watching a symphony with no sound. I know it's supposed to have sound. I even have vague memories, but I'm straining to hear and hear nothing. Everyone in the audience is enjoying the concert, but I'm painfully bored and just want to leave. The band is silently judging me for not enjoying their performance. And then uh, about his codependency, he writes, My codependency is flaring up right now as I fill out this very form. I'm going to offer you a bit of constructive criticism in the field below, and I'm convinced that you're going to hate me for it. I've listened to probably every episode of the podcast, so I feel I've gotten to know you better than I even know some of my friends. I've seen plenty of evidence of you taking constructive criticism very well and learning from it and using your listeners' advice as a means to be an even more loving advocate and community builder. I've seen this, but I'm convinced that despite the evidence, this time it won't go well. You're not just hate me for what I say, but it'll cause you to stop the podcast and I will be at fault. I'll have destroyed this whole thing that I love. All the people listening to your podcast won't have somewhere to turn to and all their lives will go to shit. It will be my fault. One of those potential listeners might have been the person who could have solved climate change, but they're never going to do it now, thanks to me, and they'll fail to stop climate change, so the earth will overheat and all human life will go extinct on this planet. All because I had to selfishly offer my suggestion to your podcast, which is already working quite nicely. I do this sort of catastrophizing about a dozen times a day. I can slow it down sometimes by telling myself that I'm not that important, but my ego has a hard time handling that. And then uh, the uh, constructive criticism. He writes, um, um... Finding your podcast is one of the best things that ever happened to me, but I think you're in error in one of the topics you discuss quite frequently. I'm absolutely no expert, so the error could be mine, but I'm reading a lot lately about how sex and love addiction aren't actually a real thing, but are more a symptom of underlying problems, which may go undiagnosed because of the incorrect focus on love and sex addiction. It could just be a semantic issue, and of course, any compulsive action can be harmful. Sex and love are like eating. They are programmed info uh, programmed into us to need to do. We can, we can eat compulsively, but it's wrong to say we're addicted to eating. Having listened to your podcast for so long, I think you have a good understanding of need to look for the heart of why a compulsive behavior is happening. But I'm hearing stories of people misunderstanding their problem and focusing on the symptoms and not the problem. Um, 
I encourage you to read some of the articles or books by Dr. Daryl Ray on the subject. Uh, he also has a podcast called Secular Sexuality, where this frequently comes up. Um, I ha- hope you take this criticism with all the love and respect it is intended. Your podcast has changed so many lives, and if there's something I can contribute to helping it out, even if it means making me feel horrible due to my codependency issues, I want to do what I can. I cast you to hell. I cast you into the deepest, darkest, hottest, humidest depths of hell. You will actually sail past the devil. You will startle the devil as you fly past him hundreds of miles below him. Because heat actually in hell, it doesn't travel up, it travels down. That's right, mister. You are part of a human crab pot. That is where you're headed, mister. No, thank you for that. I I have been thinking about this lately, and the more... And I do think it actually is semantics because the the acting out or the you know, the compulsivity being drawn to unavailable people, all the things on the surface of it that are called sex and love addiction um, are really intimacy disorders. They're ways of wanting to be validated without truly letting somebody in. And um, I heard a therapist a while back call it an intimate intimacy disorder. And I think that is a better term than sex and and love addiction. So I actually do agree with you. And I think whereas other um whereas like alcoholism or you know an opiate addiction, um I don't think there's necessarily uh, always trauma involved. It, from what I understand, there often is. It's more common than not. But I think one of the things with intimate intimacy disorders is that they're really driven much more by um, trauma or abandonment than they are by a genetic predisposition. Uh, or who knows, maybe both. But um, I was talking with my therapist about this very thing uh, on Monday, and she uh, concurred. So then I, you know, that means I'm a smarty pants. But I took that in the spirit it was intended, and I appreciate when you guys uh, do that because it helps me grow. And and maybe I needed to start, you know, substituting intimate intimacy disorder for sex and love addiction. Um, Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll do it just to spite you. Stay tuned. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a girl who calls herself, she's 16, illuminated toilet bowl. And uh, she writes, my mom saw a scar on my arm last night. It wasn't even a scar from self-harm because I never cut where it's obvious. And she said, have you been self-harming? You know, you can tell me anything, right? And I said, yeah, mom, I know that. And after a few seconds of silence, she said, you know, it's a sin to hurt the body that God gave you. Thank you for that. Uh, Mo describes her depression. 
like I'm fighting a war against myself that I'll never win. About her anxiety, doubt everything, assume you're wrong, and get ready to run. That is so fantastic. About her bulimia, you think you're digging a hole, but really you're throwing the dirt back in behind you. On about anorexia, a blanket that comforts and consoles you, at least until you pass out. And then a snapshot from her life. I ate and threw up all of my roommate's birthday cupcakes while she was out. So then I visited five different grocery stores around the city to find the right replacements. I threw away the number that I ate so that she wouldn't notice. Thank you for that. Man, I love the just the frank, detailed honesty with which you guys fill out these surveys, especially the shame and secret surveys. I know people have difficulty sometimes hearing how graphic they can be, but it's my belief that people who are stuck in the belief that their experience isn't shared by anybody else, sometimes that shame, at least in my case, can only be freed by hearing someone's story that is similar and expressed in great detail, because then it convinces me, oh no, it really, this really is a thing, and there's hope. Uh, a gender-fluid person who calls themselves much better in the sunshine uh, struggles with depression and describes a snapshot from their life. Lying in bed, trying to will the energy to think about getting up, then trying to gather the strength to think again after moving into a sitting position. Fuck. I've been there, man. I have been there. <laughs> yeah, you sit up and you take the deep breath and you look around and you're like, wow. And I'm just getting started. Uh... A guy who calls himself Harborer of the Dark Passenger describes his depression. It's like, for every reason to get out of bed, there are five more why I shouldn't. Uh, about his codependency, it's not about whether I'm tired, sad, or starving for attention. If it's going to help you, fuck me. I'll make sure you're comfortable and happy. A woman who calls herself Disco Spider Uh battles depression, anxiety, and OCD, and a snapshot from her life. In the middle of your college lecture, Googling how to love yourself. You can't make this shit up. A woman who calls herself Speedo writes about her codependency. If I cancel my appointment this week, will I hurt my therapist's feelings? I don't think there's a single one of us that has never thought that. I know I have. And, of course, this is a perfect segue into our sponsor, BetterHelp.com. Uh, I talk about it every week. I love them. If you're interested at all in trying online therapy, I highly recommend it. Um, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include this slash mental uh, so they know you came from the podcast. Uh, BetterHelp.com slash mental. Fill out a questionnaire, and then you get matched with a BetterHelp.com counselor, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if uh, online counseling is right for you, and you need to be over 18. And you can communicate through all 
You have variety. It depends on the therapist and you, but you could communicate through email, live text, uh, phone, video, you name it. And this is normally where I insert, you know, horseback, smoke signal, Morse code, semaphore. Is that a thing? Semaphore? It's either that or it's a luxurious makeup place in the mall. No, that's Sephora. Um, so yeah, go check out uh, BetterHelp.com. And I highly recommend it. I love my therapist, Donna. She helps me every freaking week. She's so wise and non-judgmental. Um, and then finally, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Jazz. And uh, about uh, compulsive behaviors, she writes, Lately, I think I've been de- developing a binging compulsion. I'm inconsolable with sadness or grief. And the only thing that consoles me is cheese, which I gave up because the suffering of animals causes me sadness and grief. And then about her sex addiction, or as we might also call it, intimacy disorder, she writes, no matter how hard I beg you, you can't fuck the grief out of me. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom, people-pleasing, dread, silent, invisible, just wailing, stuck in the grip of the obsession, derealization, depersonalization, the suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get, you know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scottface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. <laughs> and I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Andy Richter? Richter. Oh, god damn it. Richter. It means judge in German. Actually, I should know that. I took a couple of years in German. Yeah, it means judge or knight. You know, like K-N-I-G-H-T. I guess. So it's a title. And it means it's, you know, derived from the same word as Reich, as truth. It's like the keeper of truth, you know. Yeah. I took I took I took two years of German nice. in college, Andy. I took one semester and then decided I don't want to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for coming to do this, and uh, and I want to uh, give a shout out to John Moe for uh, connecting the two of us. Um, John Moe pimping me out. Yeah, John. pimping me out for mental illness. Yeah, uh, John hosts uh, the hilarious world of depression, and hopefully he's going to be a guest soon. Next time I get to Minneapolis, but I digress. Um, I love your sense of humor. Thank you. We have a lot of things in common in terms of mutual friends. Sure, where we, do. we started out doing comedy, etc., yep. etc. Jimmy Pardo is one of my best friends. Yep, and um, I mean he's and he's fine. As a person, he's, he's fine. Would you go that far? Uh, yeah. I, honestly, yeah. I, you know what? The world is in such a state right now that someone like a Jimmy Pardo is fine. You know? I feel like that's a stretch because I'm somewhere between he's a terrible human being and 
whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, I guess whatever is what I'm trying to say. Okay. Yeah. Right. There's bigger fish to fry <laughs> than Jimmy Pardo. <laughs> um, so where do we begin to talk about your story? And for people that don't know uh, who Andy is, uh, first of all, welcome. Yeah. Out first of all, fuck you. <laughs> Come well, on. Welcome out from underneath. Is it, can rock. I swear on this, on of this course. podcast? All right. Of course. Fucking A. Um, uh, you uh, have been uh, what, uh, you the sidekick for Conan. Yeah, or you... absolutely. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I have no qualms about uh, using that word because okay. what the hell else are you going to call it? It's a talk show. Mm -hmm. There's the host, and then there's the comic foil uh, yes. slash announcer slash dog food can holder upper. Um, and, of course, the archetypal one is uh, Ed McMahon. But, I mean, there were so many talk shows that did have them. I mean, that's, I think, where Regis Philbin got his uh, start was being the sidekick for Joey Bishop, I believe. Or, I mean, that's where I think his first big TV job. Um, but your background is improv. Is improv. I started in Chicago doing improv and then, uh, you know, just... Uh, did some stage shows that got some notice and then came out to L.A. and Was it uh, the Real Live Brady Bunch? The Real Live Brady Bunch. I went to college with Mick Napier and oh, Faith yeah. Soloway and Joe Bill and Eric Oh, so you went to IU. I went to IU. Oh, you didn't take any yes. Russian classes, did you? I did. No. Because my dad you... teaches. My dad, well, he, no. taught, he taught Russian at IU, yeah. Oh, my um, God. So, yeah, no, I know a lot of IU people. And I think Brian Stack went to IU for a minute. Uh, he was not there when I was there. Yeah, I think he went there, and then he transferred to Madison, because he ended up in Madison. But I do think he, I might be wrong, but I think he did go there, because I think he knew Faith from IU, too. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I I was in the Annoyance Theater, which uh, McNapier is still the, the uh, artistic director of. And um, I, so I, my training was all improv-based, and and we did a show called The Real Live Brady Bunch there, which was not improvised. It was just, I mean, it was adults doing as accurate as possible uh, representations of or imitations of uh, Brady Bunch episodes, which, which was it, it, now it sounds. Well, I mean, actually, it did spawn sort of a let's do a live version of point break or you know i mean that i think that ran here in la for a long time I, it was one of the first things to just take a television property and to just do for comedy's sake a sort of straight up imitation of it right um it was i don't know i think it it's was, it parody was... it's not really satire it just is an imitation that really kind of it, the lines were around the block yeah to to see this show it was very timely it was there was a 70s this was in the early 90s and yeah late 80s early 90s and uh it was there was a kind of a disco 70s nostalgia that was happening right at that time and it sort of hit right and, along with that and and i think there was also a let's all laugh about how low the bar was for what we liked on television. Uh, it's it was really when I first heard about it, I thought it was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard, and I don't know that I've ever before or since laughed as hard as I did at the first 
the first uh, the first I was at the first show that they did of it. Um, and it was it's it's because it's primarily because they were incredibly talented comedic performers. It never would have worked if there hadn't been really talented people doing it. Um, and Faith and Jill Soloway produced it in such a way that they had really good taste. They didn't camp it up or try and, you know, make a commentary on it. They thought the purest, funniest thing to do would be to have everyone mimic it as closely as possible to the real thing. Take and it as seriously as the show took itself. Absolutely. And you did see, I mean, and as it went on, it got a little looser and people would, you know, their characterizations would become a little sloppier and sillier and laugh getting her um but it what I, what struck me the in seeing it in it's in the early days is really how it's like when you hear a song on the radio and you realize you know every lyric mm-hmm. and you kind of hate that song and this is the way the brady bunch was it was just sort of a reminder that the television was my primary babysitter and after school rather than play with my older brother with whom I didn't really, you know, we didn't have a lot in common. I would rather sit and watch a UHF channel, uh, you know, watch channel 32 and watch the string of reruns, Partridge family, Brady bunch. Um, I can't even, you know, I don't even remember the other particular, I think Andy Griffith was on there. Just all these Petticoat Junction, all these old yeah. TV shows that, that just played on these channels. That always reminded me of being homesick from school. Yes. Petticoat, Petticoat Junction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Price is Right was always the one that did that for me. So you were born and raised in Chicago as well? Outside of Chicago. Where? A little town called Yorkville, which is yeah, yeah. straight west, kind of out mm-hmm. by uh, Aurora. And uh, I went through high school there, and then my family has since kind of moved. They're all, they've always been in the kind of the western suburbs, and they're all now in... Geneva, Batavia, that kind of... And would they move around to try to ditch you? Yes. <laughs> I know, but I mean, come on. You're within the western suburbs. It's not yes. that hard. And you'd come you know, home go, a little early You go to Naperville, I'm going to find you, is what I'm saying. Um, no, my mom had... You know, she had... Uh, she uh, she has a... a she's in the subcontracting kitchen remodeling design. So she had different... You know, she would move depending on... She had different businesses or different places that she worked for and... Uh, but now both my well, my I have a brother that lives in Bro- Brookfield, but then my brother, my other brother and sister live in uh, Geneva and Batavia. So, so what was kind of the uh, emotional temperature of your house growing up? What was? Why are you a comedian, Andy? <laughs> Get to um, the sad. Well, uh, I mean, you know what? I, I'm from funny people. My dad, my dad is really a very funny. Uh, has a very funny, silly quality to him, a very cutting wit. Mm-hmm. Um, a, 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 I mean, just a really brilliant person, really, really smart, um, but also can be can be mean. You know, I mean, that was that was also, I, you know, I've I've seen him make clerks cry. Wow. Uh, yeah. Just because he they did they didn't. You know, when he he can be like a dog with a bone. If somebody if somebody wrongs him, he just sees blood and and goes for it. Uh, so comedy was kind of currency in the yeah, American. but but it was but some of it would be funny. Like I remember once we were in, uh, it was like uh, 
Nashville, Indiana, some little town in Indiana, and we stopped at some place for lunch. And I was I was either in college or in high school at this time. I was older, but there was. He was on some, you know, like heart healthy diet or something, and he wanted a baked potato, and he but he just wanted uh, it was sort of like a cheap shit ponderosa, and he wanted cottage cheese for it, and so they said, well, we can't do cottage cheese. We have cottage cheese at the salad bar, and I said to him, I'm going to get the salad bar. I'll just get you some cottage cheese. And the woman behind the counter said, well, there's no sharing at the salad bar, so we went. Oh, okay. Don't worry about it. And then we noticed that the manager had overheard and was watching us. But I got cottage cheese and then my dad sort of like grabbed it and put it on his baked potato. And this guy, the manager actually came over and said, I'm sorry, sir. There's no sharing and uh, you're, you're going to I'm going to charge you a sharing fee. And my dad said, well, I'm not going to pay it. Call the sheriff. Call the sheriff. Like you. <laughs> And the guy backed off. But, I mean, my dad was kind of being funny, but also kind of like, or you know, it was he had a very, not physically, but definitely argumentatively, you want to go? All right, let's go kind of attitude. Right. Um, which I have a bit of that in me, too. And I, but I don't do, I don't use it. I, I don't use it on strangers. Unfortunately, I have to, you know, use I've it learned. Yeah, I've learned over the years to, you know, one of one of my, one of my sort of guidepost phrases is work for peace. So that means like within. If there's something going on, like an argument between my wife and I, I over the I've gotten to where I'm like, everything you say, make sure that it's working towards peace. You know, that's not. I mean, that isn't to say that I should just, you know, roll over if I feel like I'm being, you know, my feelings are being hurt or something's, go, that you know, I feel something's wrong. Yeah, but, but they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. You know, you just, can stand up for yourself in a yes. diplomatic, loving way. But scoring points within an argument with a loved one, like winning, like the notion of like, I'm going to win this argument with my wife. That's it's insane. Crazy. It took me 15 years in a marriage to realize why would I want a victor and a vanquished when they need to live together yes. after that? Yes, yes. It's true. It's true. It takes a long time to figure that, that out. Is that the insanity of ego? What, what is well, that? Well, it's also too, I think it's, yeah, I think it depends on, I think it depends on how you're brought up. And I think if you're brought up in a, I think if you're brought up in a household where you're not entirely, entitled to you know you know where you feel like you gotta you gotta bite your tongue and you gotta you know a household where you're you know they're a good component of what you live under is fear mm -hmm. um which i had for a while you know during when my mom's second marriage kind of got rough there was some alcohol alcoholism involved and there was a lot of conflict and so I think that that you get stymied as a kid where you feel like you're always walking on eggshells. There's always this tension and it, you know, and also, too, if you have, which I like I say, I have kind of a hereditary 
sense of the jugular and, mm -hmm. and you know and and when i see it i there have the urge to go for it uh, or just see red and just <laughs> just when the fight is on to just go um as a kid when you're kind of you know when your voice is squashed i think you, there's always a bit of uh you know, you're making up for that. Yeah, you're, pressure you're, builds up. Yeah, you're and when it comes back out. at it. I mean, my yeah, wife, I think my wife definitely has it. You know, she grew up in a pretty dysfunctional household with a, a fair amount of abuse, and and sort of, you know, I think when you're sort of told like, we don't want to hear from you, we don't want to know about you. Um, you know, I mean, like. I mean, I'm not talking out of turn because she, she's talked about it. But like her father used to say all the time, like how he he never wanted to have kids. And I just think like that is just, what a fucking awful thing for a, awful thing to for say. a parent to say to their children, yeah. which I mean, how say more, it to your friend at the bar. Yeah. But don't say it to or your don't kids. ever say it, you know, just yeah. shut up. But I mean, no, say it to your friend at the or bar. yeah, or your I'm therapist sure. or whatever. But how what what it's just it's not it's like. A centimeter away from telling your kid you know I don't want you I don't love you you weren't supposed to be uh, which which a lot of parents actually say yeah it, it is just yeah it's and I mean it just it's gonna that kind of momentary you know it, moment you know that just feeling that once puts a, a rot in the side of you that just takes years to, yeah. you, you know, I don't, and I don't even know if it ever really heals, but you can certainly kind of, you know, it can certainly become calcified. You know what I mean? And, and I think it's so hard for a kid or an adolescent to know in that moment, this is about them. I shouldn't take this personally. Oh, yeah, No yeah. kid it's is that impossible. emotionally intelligent. It's impossible. And, and very few adults are that sure. emotionally intelligent. Yeah, yeah. I, if somebody says something horrible to me, I automatically believe it. If they say something nice to me, I am suspicious yeah. as hell. Yeah, it's a, that's, a, that's, I think, also, that's a, that's a not unique sickness among performers, in that you can have an entire audience full of smiling, laughing faces, and the only one you see is that one sour-faced motherfucker with his arms closed, yep. arms crossed. That's the only person you see, and, and I, you just work on him. Yeah, I, you know, and I think to, in some ways, for me especially, and that was in my earlier days. I used to, and I think it was coming from households full of conflict mar marriages ending house families and households splitting up and the just the damage that happens from that and i don't care how amicable you could have the sweetest nicest friendliest most pleasant divorce ever it's damaging it's just it's for kids it's it's like the way people feel when there's an earthquake like this thing this goddamn planet that i walk around on that i've relied on my whole life 
it can shake and crack open and kill me? What? You know, I mean, it's a very similar kind of thing where these, you know, for kids, the stability of their household, the stability of their parents' relationship, the stability of the entire family's relationship, that's their bedrock. That's what their feet are planted on. And and when you interrupt that, when you break that, it causes problems no matter what. And do you think if if, if the divorce is amicable and the kids regain a sense of safety and continuity that there can be some healing around oh absolutely and i this isn't to say that you should that if you're trapped in a miserable marriage that you should stay together for the kids sake because i think that can be even more damaging yeah absolutely that can be um because first of all then you're you know you're living you're not living. You, you know, once if a marriage dies and you keep it together, it's really like living with a corpse. It's yeah. it's re- living within a dead organism and and it's and it it's in many ways probably sicker than it, and well, a terrible role model for the kids. Absolutely. Absolutely. But a great one for the neighbors cuz then they feel better about their marriage. Of course. It's a gift of to course. the block. Yeah, yeah. And you and like I say, you do uh you do have some leverage on your kids for the rest of your life. Like I put up with that asshole for you. <laughs> now get over here and change my tube. <laughs> you know, I, it's the least you can do when I stayed married to that shrew, that asshole, that drunk, you know, that bore, whatever you want to fill in the blank. Uh, so what are the issues that you have struggled with? Um, actually, before we do that, any kind of snapshots from your childhood or adolescence? You gave us one, you know, the dad, uh, you know, call the sheriff. Any other particular kind of vignettes that you can paint that you think inform who you are or what you've been through or something that's just kind of entertaining that popped into your head? Hmm. Or horrifying. Yeah. Or inspiring. Oh, well, doesn't have to be negative. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I can't think of anything particular. Uh Well, I do think when my mom got divorced, which by the way, my mom uh my mom and dad divorced when I was 4 because my dad came out of the closet. Uh and so my mom left him, which it was many, many years later I found out from my mom, and not that she'd been hiding it from me or anything. But she said that my dad at the time was like, well, there's no reason we need to get divorced. You know, like we can still mm-hmm. stay together because I think that he thought he could sort of manage some kind of bisexual existence. But my mom was like, no, if you're gay, you're gay. And and she uh, but I but she didn't see it coming at all. She was just, mm-hmm. you know absolutely floored she felt like something was going on and like that him having an affair was a possibility but she said she was absolutely floored by it which in re- <laughs> in retrospect if you meet my dad i mean he's clearly you know a, a intelligent you know well-spoken very funny clever handsome gay man you know it's not it's not a mystery like it's it's not so it's just i think it's that 50s thing they just were so clueless about stuff and um so your dad is tony randall 
A little bit, yeah. I mean, he's very, he's very fussy, and he, you know, and he's like, uh, he's very fussy and very well put together. And I mean, you know, like when he went, they went to, they went to high school together. That's how they knew each other. He, my dad and my mom's older sister were best friends, and my mom's older sister is also a really, really funny person. She was sort of my superstar relative because she was really fun, and she was very much. I think inspired me just to not, you know, to be funny, to just, and, and to put a value on being funny and having fun. And it's something that I even have to this day when I go, I'll go do guest spots on television shows and I get there and I'm there and I'm ready to have fun. I'm, I, we got to work 12 hours. Let's have some fun. And it is such a fucking drag to get into these situations and they're, especially if they're comedies, and you go and you're like, hey, guys, and you start to goof around and you joke around and you might be, you know, uh, you know, working out the blocking in a scene. You're doing the rehearsal, you know, walking around with the director and nobody wants to. They're all dour and like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, no, come on, seriously, let's let's quit screwing around and make some comedy. <laughs> it, it kills me because yes. it's like. Why did you get into this business? Why are you doing this? If you, you know, what, why are you doing this for a living if you don't want to have fun? Because to me, the fun is the first thing. The making the show, that's like, well, we got to do that because we got to make a check. But the fun is the first thing. And I, one thing that these fuckers will never understand, if you take care of the fun, the product will be better. If you, especially with a comedy. But I swear, I think even with... I have, a, I have a suspicion that even if you were making a harrowing movie about catching some kind of serial killer, if you were having fun while you were making it and everybody, you kept morale high, which I'm sorry, but when you're working on something like that, to keep morale high, that doesn't mean to keep everyone serious and morose. It means to keep people laughing. Mm -hmm. To keep them, to keep energy up and things. Right. So even if and you're making, relax. yeah, even if you're making Silence of the Lambs, you know, maybe, you know, maybe Jodie Foster needs her serious quiet time. But I'm betting, you know, I bet Anthony Hopkins, you could be joking around with him. Right. Uh, you know, I think that he's probably can have some fun even within characters, Hannibal Lecter, you know, I mean, yes. and so I just, uh, to me, I just feel like if you don't, why the fuck are you doing this? If you don't want to have fun. And I mean, going to work, it's the same thing as like, it's like going to church and whispering, mm -hmm. you know, sitting next to somebody fun and whispering and teasing and, you know, so, so let's circle back then to, uh, about your dad. So he came out, um, four years into, yeah. uh, your parents' marriage, right? Uh, how old were you at that point? I was four. Okay. No, I no. They had been married at that point, probably about nine years. Oh, I think. okay. You were four. Yeah, I had an older divorced. brother who was seven. So I think yeah, I think they were married nine or ten years when okay. he came out. And, and we moved back in with to what the reason I brought it up is that we moved back in with my grandparents, okay. with my mom's mom and dad, and my mom was severely depressed for well forever. But I mean, but in that. Having her marriage broken up, I have a, and I, it's one of those things where as a kid, you don't know whether you're remembering a photograph or you're remembering a, an actual image from your life. But I just have this image of that period of my life of my mom in a waitress uniform 
lying on the couch in the daytime with her arm over her eyes like you know just like lying there for hours just not kind of moving so she kind of left me to with my grandmother so i kind of became like my grandmother's sidekick and was carried around to like i this is kendall county illinois and like the women's republican luncheons and bridge club and kiwanis and all these different sort of civic organizations and uh and I was, and so it was very much a matriarchal upbringing, like between my mom and my grandma and my aunt and, and you know, another aunt that was nearby. It, I just, it was, I was raised by women. So I think in many ways, that's one of the most formative things about me is that I think I have, I don't want to say like I have a woman's outlook on things. But I definitely have a more female outlook than most men. Mm -hmm. I relate to women possibly better than men. I, you know, it's it's hard to say. But like when I, if I was to go to a house party that I don't know a lot of people, and there's a room full of women talking, and there's a room, you know, the men are around the TV watching the game, and the women are in the kitchen. talking i'm go i'm in the kitchen you know i i would want to hang around with the women because i feel like that's where the fun is that's where the interesting stuff is that's where the talking about you know life and feelings and emotions and stories yeah whereas with men it's sports and sports and sports and more sports you know so i think that that's uh that's been a very a very formative thing on me how old were you when you found out the reason your parents got divorced uh i think it was probably about eight or nine my dad uh told my brother and i uh while we were visiting at my grandparents house in springfield illinois he very weirdly one day was like Come on, we're going to the mall. We're just hanging out. We're like, oh, okay. And uh, we got in the car and we drove to a, a park that was near my grandparents' house. And he pulled in and he parked the car and he just kind of turned. And he said, I want to talk to you guys about something. And he, it was looped in. It was a, coupled with a birds and the bees talk. Oh, my God. That's exactly like my dad. I thought I was in trouble. Oh, really? He, yes, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And it was... So it was a birds and the bees. Yeah, and I, we were like, what? And it was a birds and the bees talk. You know, we got the birds. And then he's like, and some people are attracted to members of the same sex. And that's what I am. I'm gay. And I'm, you know, I'm attracted to men. And uh, that's why your mother and I divorced. And, uh, <laughs> and I just remember I was sitting in the back seat, and my brother, my brother's uh, three years older than me. And he was. I think he was more sort of wigged out by it than I was. I was just kind of like, oh, okay. And I remember sitting in the back seat and, you know, like sticking my head backwards into the back window and like looking up at the trees above me. It was like a Chevy Nova, I think. And uh, and then when he was done with it and started the car and we're driving and I, w- I was like, wait, we're not going to the mall? Like, <laughs> I thought we just stopped for a second. But he was like, no, we're not going to the mall. I just said that so we could get out of the house. I was like, oh, I wanted to go to the mall. 
Um, but yeah, he told us that, and I, you know, and it was never, it never flummoxed me. It was just kind of, you know, I accepted it. It didn't cause me any issues. I think it made, I think it might, like I say, I think it might have weirded out my older brother a little bit more. Um, but to me, it was just like, it was something. And then as I got into high school and I had friends that I could trust, I would, I told them. And in a small town, we, it was a pretty small town. It didn't, that wasn't exactly kosher to do that and we didn't even know what kosher meant um but it was you, you know it was a kind of a risky thing to say i have a gay dad mm-hmm. um because there just there wasn't anything on you know yeah there was nobody on tv there was not there was no there was just, just i don't know just the stereotype yeah that, just the it? stereotype and people calling each other faggot and you know shots of gay pride parades of you know, men in glittery thongs with full makeup, you know, that was, there was no sort of representation in those days. Um, but like I say, it never really, I never was, it never bothered me. I was always kind of, I, I don't know whether I just was young enough to handle it or just because I handle things, you know, uh, but it was never, it never, you know, it's, it's just, it's just, it just is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and do you still have a relationship with your dad today? We don't. Uh, we don't, we haven't spoken for a number of years and that's just, uh, it just, it just, um, a lot of stuff I, you know, it's like, it's, it's too personal but just we we don't we we got to loggerheads where it just it became better to to gotcha to not speak more and I, I and I sometimes uh I sometimes think oh you know I'm I'll soften and I'll think man maybe I should try to get back in touch or something. And then I'll hear something from another relative and realize like, no, there's no, there hasn't really been any change. There's still this kind of just, uh, just every indication that it's not gonna, it's not gonna work. So did you, as a kid begin to experience depression? Yeah. Talk about that. Uh, it was probably when I was about 12 or 13 or something. I, um, it was, it was, it was a little bit too with the moves. It was, you know, from moving back in with my grandparents. And then when my mom remarried, when I was eight, we moved to another town nearby. And then a couple of years after that, I think we were there two or three years. Uh, I had a younger brother and sister. My mom had twins when I was nine. Um, and we moved back and my grandfather died and we moved back into my grandparents' house and my grandmother moved into a duplex down the street and we added on to their house. We took the old, because the, the house was built by my great grandfather. It was built by my mom's paternal grandfather. So it was, and it was a big, beautiful old farm that wasn't a working farm anymore it was just a big beautiful yard and my grandfather had been a 
and kind of amateur naturalist and we had like 50 varieties of trees and 150 varieties of flowers and an orchard and you know and a, a pond in the back of our property that you know went down a hill into some woods it was just it was a very idyllic place to Beautiful grow place up to be yeah depressed. and and it was in and it's a great little town you know so we moved back there but it was in that sort of interrupting of my you know relationships with other kids and and i think also to something that something that i i later on like when in high school uh in the early years of high school i ended up hanging out with my brother's friends who were three years older because i just and this isn't to pat myself on the back i just was kind of more mature than the kids my own age. So I didn't fit in that great. And then as time went on too, I didn't fit in that great in a small town. I was, I had this just kind of free floating misery, which was depression too. But then I when I moved into the city, into Chicago, I was like, Oh, well, yeah, this is part of it. I, I need this stimulation. I need more than just the same thing every day. I, uh, I'm a city person. Basically, it was like I didn't and I didn't have any occasion to know that or any reason to know that. You didn't pick up on that from watching Green Acres after school? <laughs> that that wasn't for me? Yeah. Well, Green Acres, yeah, that was that was more acidy. That was, you know, like <laughs> LSD. But I I started to I started to really have like I started to get heartburn at like age 12 and wow. I started to have like just this anxiety and worry and sadness and uh I think my mom recognized it as depression that she'd seen in herself and very much to her credit she never there was never a taboo about seeking help with mental issues and so we went to, we called it family counseling. And uh, I would go by myself and then we go as a group. And so I started uh, experiencing the talking cure, as it's called, at a very early age. That's pretty damn progressive for that time. Absolutely, absolutely. And it really, like I say, it's really to her credit that she never saw any reason to feel to feel ashamed or to feel and i i am i am absolutely confounded still today that that it still exists that the shame around it and you mentioned john Mowat at the at the beginning and i did john's uh podcast uh the hilarious world of depression we'll we'll plug it again uh i did that podcast and i had so many people come up to me and say uh, there was there, like there was I, I mean really five or six people which I mean I've been on talk shows on television and not had that many people come up and say something about it but like in the Warner Brothers cafe uh, the Warner Brothers commissary one morning uh, I was there after the gym just buying coffee and there was hardly anybody in there and there was a guy had a soft voice southern accent uh, younger than me probably in his late 20s and told me like you know I've I've been troubled with depression my whole life and you know and I, nobody that I growing up nobody ever said anything you know they just say well you just got to get over it and I mean and you know and he all you know he's almost choked up telling me that hearing me on this podcast 
gave him the notion that it was okay to go to therapy mm. and to seek medication. And it just blows my mind that in 2018 that there are still people that don't know, like, there's no big deal. Just go. Mm. You know, it, it's to me, I always say it. If you were walking or if you got hit by a cab and there was a bone sticking out of your leg, you'd go to the hospital. Whereas you walk around feeling like death would be a, a, a relief and you don't, and you think like, well, that's my fault. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm weak. I'm a pussy. It's, and then, and then, you know, and the same goes for medication. It, you know, when I started taking antidepressants, very, what I thought were otherwise very supportive friends of mine at the time were like, well, do you think you're going to have to be on them forever? What, what a terrible the, thing to say to a friend. What the fuck does that have to do with anything? You know, it's like, what do you, you know. Do you think they're asking for themselves actually in that moment? I just think that they think that it's somehow. A crutch? Some kind of like, you know, the end of Sophie's choice, like when she's all, <laughs> you know, like libriumed out or whatever. And, you know, that they just think that you're turned into some kind of, you know, mummified creature zombie that walks around uh, shielding yourself from any unpleasant feelings. And it's like, no, it just is something that gets you out of the house, you know. So it's just, it's crazy to me that, and I mean, like I say, I really credit my mother for that, for just, just her, her frankness, which has become my frankness about it. And my, my, my just, it's, it's, you know, it's an extension of, for me, a kind of Midwestern practicality. Like, well, why wouldn't you? Why get wouldn't it, you? Get into the solution. Yeah. You can yeah. wish it was different, but that's not going to change it. No, no. In fact, it usually makes it worse. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, people are like, well, like, I mean, and I don't mean to diminish this. People say, I can't afford therapy. There are, there's an internet, get on that thing. There are plenty of organizations that can help you. There are plenty of clinics with sliding scales. There are, you can... It's it's not ideal, but you can find, uh, 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 you know, people be essentially in an intern situation. I've done it. Yeah. And she was fantastic. Yeah. You've got therapists who are learning to be therapists. And, you know, it's like going to the barber college to get your hair cut cheap. It's the exact same thing, you know. And, and if it doesn't, you know, if, you've, if you work with somebody that it doesn't. And this goes, you can spend a ton of money and find somebody that doesn't work for you. Yeah, there's bad mechanics, there's bad yeah, plumbers. Yeah, so you stop, you go to somebody else, you yes. look for somebody else. You just, and it's unfortunate that the the real bottom line answer for anything like this is, well, you just keep trying. Yep. Because you are, you know, that's that's what you're working against, is the feeling that you just can't, you can't just keep trying. That you're so sapped of any strength or willpower that you can't just keep trying. But it's, it, it is, and you don't have unfortunately, to, the answer, you know? And you don't have to figure it all out right now. No. That's one of the things that depression tells you, is yeah. you have to come up with a single solution right now, or the le rest of your life is fucked. Yeah. No. Just take a little baby little steps. Little bits at a time, yeah. Ask for help. Sometimes ask a friend. Say, 
I'm feeling so overwhelmed. I don't even know where to begin to find a therapist. I'm helping a friend right now find a therapist because he can't, he can't pick up the phone. He's yeah. just frozen yeah, in yeah. depression and anxiety. And, and I'm like, I'll, I know a ton of therapists. Let yeah, me yeah. shoot it. All I had to do was shoot an email out. It's not like I'm getting in the car and right. driving around town. Right. And so ask a, ask a friend of yours that you, that you trust, but definitely keep, keep trying. Yeah. And even if it's just a little thing here that there every day, um, before you know it, um, the universe, I believe meets you, meets you halfway. Yeah. Um, so depression began to present itself, um, and you started going to counseling as mm-hmm. a, as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you begin to feel some relief? Yeah. Oh, definitely. I think, I think definitely, uh, being in a form of therapy with, you know, with a family psychologist, uh, was helpful because you do sort of, it was the beginning of learning how to use the process, uh, which just quite simply is taking those thoughts that you've turned over and over and over in your hand, like rosary beads that you're counting, putting them into words, forming the words, saying them to another human being who is in many ways a blank canvas, who in many ways is just, you know, like a like one of those trampolines that you throw balls against, mm-hmm. just something to pitch it back to you. And there, I have had so many times in that process where something that I have been chewing on forever, something that has been a neuroses or a, uh, just a, a fucked up mechanism, a bad, a bad MO in my thinking. I put it into words and I talk about it. And as I say it, I realize, well, this is what I got to do. You know, just the actual, just the gesture, just the, the actual action of putting in, into words and speaking it out into the air. And sometimes writing it. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. writing it. I, I'm, uh, then I, <laughs> I, I'm better talking. I'm a, you know, I am, I am, too. I'm a better talker. The blank page is not my friend. So, uh, I, but uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's something about when you have to form it into a sentence, the crazy becomes apparent. Yeah. The lies. Yeah. Become, you begin to see and the lies more wrong. clearly. What right. you're doing wrong. And I mean, I don't mean that you, sometimes you're doing stuff wrong. I don't mean universally wrong. I mean wrong for you. Right. Like I'm doing this. I'm smacking my face into this same brick wall. And when you, and you say it and you're like, oh, shit. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so I started to learn that process. Um, but then there's, you know, there's also, too, as time goes on and, I, you know, and I went away to college uh, throughout high school, I didn't really do much counseling. And when I went to college, I kind of came a little bit undone emotionally. And I started I started into therapy at the counseling center at uh, my college at University of Illinois. And that was sort of helpful. And uh and most universities do have free Absolutely. mental counseling. Absolutely. For and what students. you are doing is you are you are being counseled by people who are learning to be counselors at the university. It's the same, you know, it's like I say, it's like the barber college. 
they're learning how to do it and they're learning with you uh, and for no cost whatsoever. So I took advantage of that. And, and, and boy, that if there's a place that, that people need therapy, it's college. It sure is. It's your first step out. It's like it really is like college is the fall from the nest to the ground, you know, and, and it's it's. And even as at the time, you know, like our household had been so tumultuous and so unhappy in many, many ways, but it still was my support structure. It still was, it still was a routine. It still was something I knew. And I got to college and there was a part of me that was like, I can't wait to get out of this house and get away from all this screaming. You know, like I used to, I remember there was one night I was walking home from, I was in high school, I was walking home and it was like a really beautiful, warm night and uh, the sun had just set and it was just really gorgeous. And uh, I was, I mean, I was probably more than a quarter of a mile from my house and I could hear the screaming because all the windows were open because it was a nice night. Wow. I could hear all the yelling about just nothing, just, you know, whether the dishwasher was unloaded or whether, you know, who knows what, you know, and just, and I, as much as I felt like I, I can't wait to get out of here and get some peace and quiet, I still came apart. I still, you know, I still was, you know, left kind of standing alone without the, the bandages that had been wrapping me and holding me together were, were gone. Um, and as, so as time went on, I, you know, I, uh, the first real, be I, when I was in Chicago, I actually, I was, I was started, I started having, I started getting the depression started ca really catching me. It, you know, it was a lot of my youth w with depression was like, you know, it was like a game of tag, and but when I would get tagged, I would get just, you know, the tag was like a giant's hand that would smack mm -hmm. me to the ground, and it would take me a while to get back up. And then I'd get back up, and I'd keep running from it, but it would catch up to me again. And I actually threw the, I looked, I saw in a classified ad at the University of Chicago, or the, uh, I'm sorry, UIC Chicago, University of Illinois in Chicago, they were doing a program with higher doses of a anti-anxiety drug uh, to use it for see its uh, effectiveness with depression. And so I got into this program and it really helped a lot. It was my first time ever taking an antidepressant. Um, and it was kind of, you know, but I mean, it was relatively early too. It was probably 1988, you know, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and it really was, it really was useful, but then the study was over and they, they oh, you know, they're oh like, no. well, I'm glad it worked. Goodbye. And I, I couldn't afford anything. I couldn't afford anything. So, but it had given me enough relief to know I needed something more serious. So I went to a, I found a, I found a shrink with a sliding scale and went in and said, you know, I'm here because I just had this experience. And she said, you know, she said, like, if you, she said that that was a malpractice. <laughs> she was like, she's like, I can tell within talking to you for five minutes that you're depressed. You don't need a experimental program. You need help. So 
and then I and that was when I started. What was malpractice about it that they just left you on your own? That that someone that I wasn't someone that was that. I rather than something that might work like, oh, you have some problems with depression here. Try this and see if it helps. Like they should have said, you know what? You're really depressed. We, you should do something real. You shouldn't do something I that has a possibility like you're of working. in a state of crisis. Yes, this exactly. Like- exactly. You know, it's like. You know, it's like they're testing a new bandage and somebody comes in with all their fingers cut off. You know, it's like, no, that person should go to the ER. Gotcha. They shouldn't try this new Band-Aid, you know. Um, and, I, and then I, and that's how I started then on uh, antidepressants. And I, I, I think it might have been Prozac. I don't remember exactly what the first one was. Um, but I couldn't maintain that just because I did, couldn't afford it. And I ended up leaving town with the Brady Bunch, got on the Conan show, uh, and it was really strange when I got on the Conan show because up until that point in my life too, a lot of the, a lot of the depression that I had had and a lot of the issues that I'd had, I thought, well, I mean, I'm broke. I'm trying to be a performer and who knows whether that'll ever work. You know, that it could be complete folly. And I, you know, uh, you know, being in love, dating, that was, you know, there was nothing happening there. Um, and those were three, you know, love, money, career. Those, those are like the, <laughs> those are three pretty big things in our modern world. Um, so I got on the Conan show, uh, started making money. I had, I start when I started on the Conan show. I was always already engaged to my wife, and we were, you know, I mean, it's twenty four, twenty. Well, now twenty six years because if you count the two that we dated, you know, I mean, that's still going well. So I was in love. I was very happy to be in love and 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 very happy to be engaged, making money and on television, like you know, and two at that time. I was like one of three people out of, say, the 60 or 70 people that I would have considered my peers to be working in television. And you were working five nights a week. I was working five nights a week on something that was good, that and was union. respected, and it was, yeah. I, so I was making a good living. And I, oh, I and remember I too, saying, I made it. Yes. I'm, I remember I'm on television. Watching it and going, that lucky motherfucker. <laughs> what a great gig. He doesn't yeah. have the pressure of being the host. Yeah. He gets to chime in now and then. Yeah, yeah. And it I've always been envious. Yeah, of, it was no, it's a good job. And I mean and it's and it's and it's uh it was kinda you know, I uh and you do a great job, by the way, when I Thank say that you. lucky Thank motherfucker, no, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know, believe me. I, I understand. <laughs> I'm with you. Um but I had these, I basically, all of the three, like the three real engines of worry and stress and despair and anxiety had been, you know, shut down. Like, I'd shut, you're making money, okay, let's turn that one down. You can relax. You're in love, you can turn that down. Let's, re- you know, you can relax. You're this career. You're on TV. You know who knows how long it'll last. But for Christ's sake, you're on TV. 
shut that down. And I still, I found myself, the worry, the anxiety, the sadness, it was almost like it couldn't slot into these areas where it would had gone. So it would go towards mortality. I started being obsessed with death. I started feeling like, well, I'm in love and I'm married, and but I mean, what's the point? So, you know, it'll seem like five minutes from now I'm going to be in a in a nursing home bed, and I don't mean to be, I mean like it would be forty years, right. but those forty or fifty years or sixty or however many, but that it will seem like a blink of an eye, and then I, and I'll be dead, and what's the point? And just you know, realized this is fucked up you know i mean things could not be better in term uh, in terms of where i was from and where i was going and what i wanted out of life and i still was miserable what what a great example though of the difference between situational sadness and anxiousness and clinical depression mm-hmm. or clinical anxiety yeah what a great example of it yeah. and, and i experienced the same thing I was on TV and I was at my most suicidal and it actually made me even more depressed that I had this great life on paper that I couldn't feel. So I assumed the rest of my life is going to suck. It is nowhere to go but downhill from here. Yeah. Yeah. It's and well, and then all you and then all there is to do is get help, which is what I did, which is what I did. That's so So awesome. And I started with I start and I I started at that point. This would have been probably about 1994. I started at that point uh, with a therapist uh, in New York who I still talk to today. I mean, we've been talking now. I, you know, I guess that makes it 24 years wow. on 25 years. Uh, and we, you know, I talk to him on the phone. I keep phone sessions. And when I happen to be in New York, I, I talk to him on the phone, but um, to have that kind of continuity has been like a real important, uh, a real important feature of my life and a real kind of leg to the table, stabilizing everything. And I think, I mean, I'm on medication that, and that's great. And that gets me go. That gets, you know, that gets me started. Uh, but the talking cure, which I just love that phrase, the talking cure has sustained me and has, uh, it's taken the place in my life that I think religion takes for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I, not that I worship it, you know, not that I, you know, no, it brings you it relief. Just, it, it gives me a sense of progress. It gives me a sense of placement. It gives me a way to organize and sort out the swirling mess that life can be. And, and it gives me a reason to continue. It gives me, but the, so the main thing, sense the sense of progress, mm-hmm. not purpose, okay. progress that because to feel stagnant makes your depression worse. Just, it's always getting a little better. I'm always getting, I'm just getting a little better. And like you so said, that kind of keeps a little bit every time. 
I still am figuring things out. I've been doing this for a long, long time, and I've and I have made a lot of progress, and I'm very proud of the progress that I've made, and I feel the benefits of it in many of my relationships. But I still am learning. I still am learning about myself. I still am figuring things out about myself. Have you listened to an interview with Norman Lear? He's 93, mm, and no. he said the same thing. Really? He's been in therapy, and he says, I'm still learning things about myself. Yeah. And he, and he loves it. That's, it's, there's, you never get to the end of it, yeah. you know. I mean, you, until, you know, yeah, the obvious one, but, you know, you don't, I don't think that you ever get, it's strange to me. I know some people who have said, who say, well, you know, I figured it out. I got, you know, I had some issues and I figured them out and, uh, and I stopped going like I, I was, I, like I, that to me, I don't know that I'll ever get there. I don't know if I ever necessarily want to get there, Yeah. you know, I mean, because to me, it's like, it's like going to the gym. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a maintenance. It's a maintenance that I, uh, that just has a, you know, it's one of the most, it's as useful to me as drinking water and eating food and breathing air. If you're depressed, if you need help, you got to keep at it until you get some help. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I have the same, I have a daughter who was who just, not just like me, but when I was 12, almost the same kind of relationship with school. Smart, gets pretty good grades, but homework is like kryptonite to Superman. And I, and I tell her, I have been through this. I know that, I mean, the torture, like being in fourth or fifth grade and just every night being tortured over stupid fucking worksheets, you know, about whatever nonsense that kids are learning. Uh, and I, and I tell her that I, I, there's no secret. You just do it. You just got to do it. You just got to, and, and sometimes you can't do it until you feel it. You just can't, you know, you can say, I know I got to do it, but you, d- and you're stuck. And, and, and what do you do in those moments? Are you gentle with yourself? Not always. Yeah. Not always. Not always. I, you know, uh, I try to be, I try to be, and I'm much better than I used to be. That's, you know, one of the big kind of progress things is that like, I know I don't respond well to somebody calling me names and insulting me and uh, trying to paint a picture of me as a loser who will always be a loser, especially when I'm doing it to myself. Mm-hmm. And I, for many years, have done that to myself. Uh, so I try very hard not to do that, and I try very hard to be, uh, you know, to be an, a good parent to me, too. Uh, to be a good parent to the kid that's in me in the same way that I want to be a good parent to the kids that I are my real kids. Like I'm nobody's been awful to me in my life. I mean, we're not done yet, (laughs) but you know, like I, I I might've had a dysfunctional childhood, but I wasn't, you know, I, I was, I was surrounded by people who 
were dealing with their own things. You know, it was nobody. I wasn't. I wasn't beaten, and it wasn't like a long campaign of of destroying me. Um, so I and and with the and with the you know my life and the people I'm surrounded with and you know my family and the strength and, that I get from them, I. I still have the feeling and I still take solace in the notion that things are within my control. I think that people who have been hurt more, people that are hurt, it's probably a little easier to think, no, there, there's got to be magic. There's got to be some kind of mysterious, mysterious mechanism and some kind of, you know, some kind of ghost in the sky that's making things happen because otherwise why am I where I am? Mm -hmm. If it's within, if it's within one's control, how come I'm so unhappy or how come I'm in such a rough spot? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's, it, it's easy uh, when I'm uh, the, the, what I'm getting at is uh, it's easy for me to say for me to not, believe in magic because yeah. I got a pretty good life. I think, I think it's the people that have hard lives that need magic. Well, Andy, thank you so much for coming and sure. uh, opening up and being so, uh, so honest and, and vulnerable. And it was great to, to get to, uh, to hear your story. Well, thank you very much. I would I actually like you to not use any of this. Um, I'm going to use just like a 30-second clip, okay. but I'm going to just take this stuff that makes you look the worst, <laughs> and it's just going to be a loop for an yeah, hour. Yeah, just me saying, like, I am a fat bastard. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. All right, bye-bye. Thanks. I really enjoyed getting to sit down and, and talk to Andy. Our paths have crossed uh, before, but never never got to talk to him one-on-one. -on -one. What a what a sweet guy. Um before I forget, uh, if you live in Europe um, and you are interested in possibly being interviewed, I am coming definitely to Ireland. I haven't decided what other countries yet, but um, July 11th through the 30th, I will, in one form or another, uh, I will be in either the UK or continental Europe. Is that what you call it? The, the big hunk? Is that... Is that what everybody calls it? The big piece? Um, so you can email me. Oh, the other thing I forgot to mention, if you want to um, support the show, there's a couple of different ways that you can do it. And one of the new ways is you can email money through uh, this app. It's called Zelle, Z-E-L-L-E. -E. And uh, I guess all you need is an email address. And so that email address would be mentalpod at gmail.com. And that would be a great way to support the show because I know for some people it's a matter of not having the money but for other people it's a matter of it not being convenient or they just forget so um, if you have Zelle pause the podcast right now and give me some fucking money because we do we do need money and um, especially to fund the uh, trip to go record some non-Americans. Um, really looking forward to meeting all these uh, these Irish people that uh, I have corresponded with over probably the last three years. Not a lot of correspondence, but enough that uh, 
I know there's some interesting stories out there to, to record, and it's where half of my family is from. All right. Let's get to some surveys. Oh, the other ways that you can support the podcast financially, consider becoming a monthly donor through uh, Patreon for as little as a buck a month. And sometimes I'll throw in some oh free fun stuff, a little, maybe a silly video or occasionally a, a bonus episode here or there. Um, and if you don't use Patreon, you can also be a monthly donor or one-time donor through uh, PayPal. But I prefer Patreon because it's easier to keep in touch with you guys. And if I'm raffling something off like a hotel room at a podcasting festival or if I start woodworking again, maybe a cutting board, um, it's much easier to contact you guys through Patreon. Um, all right, let's get to some surveys. This is an awful moment filled out by a person who calls themselves Cowhugger. It's a I believe it's a woman. Yes. Uh, Paul, I just finished listening to the most recent episode with Nora McInerney, who was fucking awesome, by the way. And once again, heard your request for an awfulsome or happy moment and decided it was time for me to contribute. Yes. If you guys haven't filled out, um, it is my favorite survey to read. The happy moments and the awfulsome moments. Uh, she writes, when I was 14, I dated a 17-year-old guy in my high school who I thought was so cool and dreamy, only to find out he was a manipulative narcissist who was also, you should have known when you saw his picture in the yearbook in the Manipulative Narcissist Club. I mean, that should have been your first clue. Uh, who was also either a compulsive liar or a full-on schizophrenic. He had these made-up friends he would talk about constantly and all of the badass things they would do together. You know, cool things like beating people up or murdering them in very specific, gory ways. And let me reiterate, these people did not exist. There's a long list of the manipulative ways that he made me hate myself. The first time we had sexual intercourse was also my very first time having sex, and I now know that it was rape. Not a violent rape, more the kind of rape where I meekly said no, I didn't want to, and he inserted his penis anyway and said just for a second and proceeded to thrust until he finished while I looked away and pretended it wasn't happening. Over the next several months, he isolated me from my family and friends, threatening to hurt anyone that looked at me or spoke to me. Finally, at the end of the school year, his grades were so bad that he had to go to summer school. Um, fortunately, uh, when we had the break, he could not keep tabs on what I was doing or who I was talking to. And suddenly, it was like I could breathe again. I went to the movies with my best friend that I hadn't spoken to in months. I hung out with people on the weekends. It was amazing and such an eye-opener to what I was missing because of this person. When he came home for break, I told him I didn't want to have sex anymore. He tried all of his tricks to make me feel guilty or like I had no choice and that I was selfish for doing this to him, but I didn't care. It never felt good and I didn't want to anymore. And finally came the time when I was ready and strong enough to break up with him. It was a process, lots of guilt tripping on his end. He said he couldn't live without me, that no one else would love me, that I was ugly. And when I finally told him we were over and I didn't care what he did, he threatened to kill himself. He had the gun in his hand. I heard him turn off the safety. He said the gun was pointing at his head, and if I hung up the phone, he was pulling the trigger. I calmly said, okay, and hung up the phone. My heart was racing, but I was thrilled that I finally did it. And if he killed himself, so be it. Good riddance. He wouldn't be able to torment me anymore or threaten to hurt the people I loved. And then the phone rang. 
It was him saying, you stupid slut, I'm really going to do it this time. Again, I said, okay, with more emphasis this time, and hung up the phone. He never called back. And just in case you were wondering, he did not kill himself. When school started back up, there he was, completely ignoring me, and I was free. Thank you for that. And what a great example of not only the way sick people manipulate and try to control, um, but that it's never the fault of someone for somebody else's suicide by breaking up with them. Um, And it is such a selfish thing to... Because what you're saying, when you tell someone, if you leave me, I will kill myself, what you're essentially saying is, I am putting all of the responsibility of my life in your hands. You are in charge of me. And some people are so sick, they when they say that, they believe that that is a compliment to how lovable the other person is. And they can't see how incredibly sick and manipulative it is. But good for you for, for doing what you did. And that must have been terrifying. Terrifying. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Sad Dad, Rad Dad. And he writes, I have four siblings, three sisters, uh, one two years older, one 14 years younger, and one 16 years younger, and one brother who is 10 years younger. Our family has had a rough few years due to a medical trauma, which has led both of my younger sisters to seek counseling for anxiety and depression. I couldn't be more proud of them for seeking help before it becomes a crisis. Our parents are extremely loving, though tend to be of the suck-it-up-buttercup school of relatively benign emotional neglect, which has left us all with varying levels of affect dysregulation. Now that my siblings are all reaching adulthood, I decided to reach out and share with them details of my lifelong battle with anxiety, OCD, and depression, which includes a suicide attempt at the age of 10, debilitating harm Uh, OCD, and a hospitalization. Their responses were full of love and understanding, and I believe making myself vulnerable by risking transparency will help lift the veil of silence around our family's emotional experiences and enable my siblings to have a safe, non-judgmental person to reach out to should they find themselves lost in the darkness. It has brought me so much joy and healing to share my experiences with others. For much of my life, my mental illness isolated me, but now it's become a gateway to intimacy. A fucking men. High five. High five. That is, you just distilled what... I've been trying to do with the podcast into a paragraph. What I really should have done in 2011 is just had one episode where I just read this. Uh, and then any comments to make the podcast better, he would like to hear an episode on postnatal slash postpartum mood disorders. We have done uh, a couple on that. So anytime you're interested in a topic and you don't see it listed, um, go to the search box for our website and type in any keywords that are relevant, uh, or go to um, Google it and type in mental pod along with the word, the keyword you're looking for, and usually something comes up right away. 
All right. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Whisper Boot Cats repeatedly. Um, and she writes, I realized the other day that a lot of happy memories are connected with certain smells, like the fur of one of my cats when they have been frolicking outside in the sun. The scent is slightly different from when it's cold outside, but still highly addictive. Sometimes I hold my tiny, long-haired cat against my face with both hands and just inhale her like I need her in order to breathe. It reminds me of my childhood rabbit and how her fur used to smell when she had a good day out in the sun just eating grass and rolling around in the dirt. It's like they smell like they are happy and carefree, and it's the best antidepressant I've ever come across. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. I love... I don't love it on other dogs, but I love bad breath on my dogs. Well, now it's just one. It's just Ivy and ooh, her breath. Ooh. Her breath is as ugly as she is pretty. She would feel very mixed about that. Actually, she might even be proud that she has bad breath. But she would be very hurt if she thought I said anything other than she's strikingly beautiful. Uh, This is a shame and secret survey filled out by, um, and the reason I chose these two shame and secret surveys is it did that thing that, that, that happens. Um, you know, I, I, every week I will read 10 shame and secret surveys and, um, there's always two in there that are just like twins. And, uh, so that's one of the reason I chose, and they're also just compelling and interesting to me personally. Uh, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself fall. I like how I'm explaining to you why. You know why I think why I think I'm doing that? Because that voice in my head that tells me I've picked the wrong surveys wants to apologize to you in advance before you send me the email telling me why why you're no longer listening to the show. I'm trying to save you an email. That's what I'm doing. Uh, she calls herself falling in the forest and she is, uh, she identifies as bisexual. She's in her twenties, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, she writes, my dad sexually abused me. My brother sexually abused me and raped me more times than I could count. Boys at my school would touch my boobs and my ass because quote, there was so much of it to touch. I mostly feel ashamed and angry at myself for letting these things happen to me. I think it's my fault because I wasn't a good daughter, because I wasn't a good sister, because I was too fat to not be abused. I am so sad that all of these people took my life and turned me into a suicidal mess. Uh, She's been emotionally and physically abused. Um by both parents. Uh, both like to push me into walls. My mother liked to slap me or hit my head against the table, and my father enjoyed kicking me in my legs, my back, and my stomach. I wonder if they put that on the Christmas card. Um, I feel so ashamed by what happened because to the outside world, we are the perfectly happy family, and I could never tell anyone because it doesn't fit my family. My mother is always nice to everybody except me, so nobody could imagine what happened at home. She always explained my bruises with me being clumsy and that I just love to play outside and that I had to learn what my body could take. That is so fucked up. 
any positive experiences. Now, as I am 22, my mother is kind of nice to me and my parents aren't violent anymore, so I often question my memories or tell myself that I deserved what happened because I was a bad kid. And now I'm better, so I don't get hit anymore. Also, my mother said when I confronted her with the past that I was making this stuff up and had to stop lying, otherwise I would never be normal. I'm so sorry that that is your experience and... You know, I wonder sometimes if when parents stop doing this, they are doing it because that that child is now an adult and they know that they can't get away with it. Um, I also sometimes wonder if if they truly don't remember that that if when a parent gets you know, their switch flips or whatever you want to call it, that they, they go into some type of a blackout where where they truly don't remember doing things. I don't know. Uh, darkest thoughts. I had orgasms when my brother abused me, and when I masturbate, his picture pops into my head, so I think that I will only ever have orgasms when it is about him. You know, even if you did... Even if that is the case, that is not a comment on who you are or how you have handled what has happened to you. And uh, it's easy for me to say, you know, don't feel shame about that, but don't feel shame about that. Um, darkest Secrets. My brother got me pregnant and I had a miscarriage when I was 16. Man. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fantasize about being raped because I don't deserve having sex with someone who loves me. I feel ashamed and think when I fantasize about this stuff that it supports the feeling of being at fault for my past. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would say to my baby self, brace yourself. Your future isn't going to be bright. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to fall asleep and never wake up again or die in an accident so nobody would know how much I wanted to commit suicide. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared some things with my therapist I used to go to and with my best friend, but always playing it down and leaving out the nasty details. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? I feel stupid for sharing my past and thoughts because nobody will care anyway or would believe me. Anything you would like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences. Get help and report the people who abused you. They don't deserve being protected by you. And I want to say that you are not stupid and um, people do care and do believe you. And I would be one of them. And I would imagine uh, every person listening believes you. And those that don't have their own issues that they're filtering it through and God bless them, but fuck them. And, um, I hope that you decide to stay alive because you sound like an introspective, sensitive person who has a chance to have a life that isn't plagued by suicidal thoughts. Um, so I really encourage you to, to get get help again. And um, as you heard in the episode with, with Andy, just keep looking. Just keep moving your feet forward. Don't give up on yourself. Uh, Tom shares about his insomnia. 
Insomnia is like the world getting darker and darker with every sleepless night, and you start to hope for the day it becomes pitch black, except it never does, feeling like a slow, painful death of the brain. And then a snapshot of his life, sat in the corner of the dark bedroom on the carpet, hugging my knees and sobbing uncontrollably, awake again after three days of no sleep. I am barely aware of my loving girlfriend who is downstairs on the couch, probably crying too, because she no longer knows of a way to comfort me. Months of chronic insomnia is slowly driving me insane and relentlessly trashing every single aspect of my life. I think my brain is trying to kill me from the inside out. I wish so much there was a big red off button at my side I could press and escape the dark hell I'm in. Dawn comes along with tweeting birds and bright light and I have to face the daytime as a zombie again until the panic attacks of the evening come again. I am obsessed with sleep to the point that literally nothing else matters besides surviving the evening and catching at least some unconsciousness as a temporary escape. My heart goes out to you in a way that I cannot even overestimate. I don't, I've, I've experienced minor bouts of insomnia and it was hell and I'm so sorry that you're having to go through this. And one of the reasons I wanted to read your survey is to direct you towards, and I don't know if it will be helpful or not, but we had, I believe he was either a psychiatrist or a doctor, write an article for our website just last week about insomnia because he works with um, people and helping to deal with it. And he has some insights and some tips and and I think he also discusses ways that it can be um, um, mis- mismanaged in, tr- in trying to treat it. I could be wrong. My, my memory is terrible because I haven't been sleeping. Oh, that was a terrible joke. Uh, so go go check it out. It should, it should be posted under guest blogs um, on our website. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself... Uh, my thof the the lone wolf i don't know what the fuck it says uh today after a saturday full of family activities going to my son's first game of little league making bracelets with my daughter and watching a kids movie of questionable quality together aren't they isn't every kid's movie of questionable quality? Actually, that's not so much true today, but uh, my husband had just left to go hang out with his friends, and the kids and I were all sitting at the kitchen table having a bedtime snack. I went and grabbed a book about feelings aimed at kids with ADHD to read together. I read out loud to them, which we don't do too often. I read out loud to them, which we don't do too often, uh, because they are 11 and 8 now and read a bunch themselves. We had an open and fun conversation about our feelings and the specifics, like what your body feels like for certain feelings. My son, who has ADHD and some other challenges, said to me he feels sad when I get angry at something he's done and he feels like he did something really bad. Usually he means like not bringing his homework home or doing it, not doing the things he needs to do after being told 20 times and I've become just so frustrated because I don't know how to get through to him. I apologized and said it's not right that I get so angry and asked him to forgive me and of course he did. He's incredibly genuine, sensitive, and sweet. 
I've felt really, really terrible about my anger this week as I know it's misplaced and he's truly doing his best. My happy moment in this, it strikes me, as they are in their rooms getting ready for bed, I'm doing it. I'm being the parent I wanted to be. I'm teaching them to talk about their feelings as I feel like I'm learning how to deal with mine myself. I'm helping my son feel accepted and manage his ADHD, even though I was just diagnosed myself two years ago at age 34. I'm getting both of them tools to deal with big feelings and anxiety, even though I'm struggling with anxiety and depression right now myself. And I'm leading that charge. Not my current husband, uh, in parentheses, their stepdad, or their dad, I have the health insurance. I book the psychologist appointments and the meetings with the teachers and buying the books they need to help them. I'm arranging the play dates so they can have strong, close friendships uh, to help them be kids. I'm being the parent I needed. No matter how many times I screw up, I keep trying harder. Maybe I am enough today. What a beautiful, beautiful email. And what a realistic email about, I would imagine, because I'm not a parent, a realistic email of what being a parent can look like when it's when it's being done well. Um, yeah, I just thank you for that. Thank you for that. And you know, there's a lot of talk these days, and you know, I don't think it's all necessarily misplaced about kids being coddled and enabled and, you know, being excessively told that, you know, that they're wonderful and not given consequences or boundaries or any of that other stuff. And I think while that is absolutely true in a lot of cases, I think this should, that last email I, or survey I read should not be construed as fitting in that category because the mother apologized. That to me is not enabling uh, a kid um, because she she was wrong for um, lashing out at her kid, but she's a human being and she handled it. She cleaned up her mess and that's all we can hope for. And I make messes, and I try to apologize, and that's my best. Why would I expect more out of somebody else? This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Cedar Shavings. And she writes, I spent most of my teen years obsessing over a singer-songwriter who was quite a bit ahead of me in age. My adoration for her and her music was one of the main things that helped me realize I was a lesbian in my late 20s. It's been 17 years since I first became infatuated with her, and I finally got the chance to meet her at one of her shows last week. In the middle of the performance, it hit me. She's a good musician, but not the greatest. And she doesn't make me feel that same tingly excitement or intrigue anymore. And when I met her, I felt, dare I say it, kind of bored. She was perfectly nice to me, if a little disinterested and tired. 17 years ago, I would never have had this emotional response. I know this sounds like I'm writing about a sad, disappointing moment, but it was the opposite. It was I was driving home from the show, I thought... This didn't feel like a letdown to me. It felt like a new chapter in my life. I felt like a grown-up with new priorities and more interesting things going on nowadays. I felt free from my awful teenage phase of closeted lesbian obsessions over older women I'd never meet. Like I was suddenly 
somehow on her level of existence and could finally chill out. She's just a human being like me. That's all there is to it. The world seemed different to me 17 years ago. And I don't know when exactly my perspective changed, but it has. Now I can think about other things and fall for people I actually know in real life without daydreaming about something or someone else around the corner. My heart aches when I look back on my younger, confused-as-fuck, gay-as-fuck self, but man, do I feel at peace now. So awesome. So awesome. Thank you. Uh, and then this is the other shame and secret survey that I felt like is is the twin to um, the one I read earlier. And this one's a little bit more graphic than the uh, the other one. I know people often want trigger warnings on things, and mostly I don't uh, do it because I feel like half of this show would be a gigantic trigger warning. Um, and she calls herself Emily. She is, uh, she identifies as asexual. She's in her 20s. She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Boy, I would beg to disagree with that one. Um, continuing. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, she writes, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was in high school, I was waiting for the late bus, and a kid ran up to me and humped me while one of his friends recorded the whole thing. A few months ago, I was talking to a guy, and I told him I wasn't comfortable doing anything more than making out, but we were drunk, and he sucked my boobs and put his hands down my pants and rubbed my clit. I was frozen for a minute or two before I finally told him it was too far, and he stopped and left my room. Uh, my mom walks around the house naked, and, and by the way, everything I'm reading about her mother is textbook covert narcissism. I have heard dozens and dozens. Um, and Emily, if you're listening, contact me because there's a support group that I can connect you to um, that will, I believe, help you feel less alone with this and give weight to how fucked up these things are that your mom does. Um, uh, my mom walks around the house naked and always barges into my room while I'm changing. She comes into the bathroom while I'm showering because she, quote, has to use the bathroom. I catch her looking at my breasts, and she always comments on how I need new bras. Sometimes she slaps my ass. One time, she saw my sister changing and commented on her shaved hoochie, referring to her vagina. She's also been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, my mom used to slap me across the face, in the arms, legs, and other body parts. One time, my ex-boyfriend pushed me on the ground while we were verbally fighting. My mom has emotionally abused me for my entire life. She treats me as a friend instead of a daughter, overshares, makes me feel guilty for going away to college, makes me feel guilty for basically growing up. She is manipulative and calls herself the taxi cab whenever me or my sister ask for a ride. Uh, my ex-boyfriend used to tell me he would kill himself if I broke up with him. My dad is emotionally neglectful and doesn't talk about his feelings at all. Any positive experiences with abusers? I love my mom, so thinking back on everything she has put me through makes my stomach churn. And that is why it is so important to find a support group of people who understand you because 
giving weight to the truth that we are an abuse in a sexually abusive relationship with with a parent is one of the biggest mind fucks you can go through because there still is that figurative umbilical cord that you don't want to cut and very often there are parts of them that can bring good into our lives uh, darkest thoughts uh, making little girls come like ages three to four I imagine rubbing their clit until they orgasm I think about sucking my dad's dick I think about killing myself either by pills or jumping off of a building I think about running away and never looking back abandoning everyone and just starting over sometimes I wish my mother was dead uh, darkest secrets one time I got my sister off I was nine or ten and she was five or six I rubbed her clit until she got a quote tingly feeling that I knew was an orgasm I immediately was filled with shame even though I know I was just a kid exploring or trying to figure out my own feelings I still hate myself for it and I wonder if she is so depressed or suicidal because of this I used to masturbate with my stuffed animals. I would take my stuffed animal's paw and rub myself with it until I came. I used to masturbate under my desk in school, and sometimes I got caught by classmates, but I still didn't stop until I came. I've never been faithful in a relationship. I have physically and emotionally cheated on all of my boyfriends. I've tried to kill myself a few different times. Uh... Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want my dad to fuck me hard from behind until he comes inside of me. I want to be finger-fucked under the table of a public restaurant. I want to have sex in public, like in a movie theater, with people watching me and joining in, resulting in a big public orgy. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my mom how much my skin crawls when she touches me. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? I mostly wish to just not wake up anymore, or to be able to escape all of my problems and start over new. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, my best friends, and they both understand. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? Ashamed, relieved, sad. I am just sad. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I love you, and you're not alone. Thank you so much for your... Um, your brutal honesty and not shying away from um, the details of things. Some people listening may think, oh, you know, why did she write that? Or why is he reading all of that stuff? That's gratuitous. Um, I, I beg to differ. Um, you know, when you, when you write, I want to tell my mom how much my skin crawls when she touches me. That would be such a great place for you to really begin honoring how you feel in your body and re reclaiming your personal space. You know, mothers like yours, whether consciously or subconsciously believe that you are an extension of their body and that they somehow are entitled to see you naked when they want to, to have you see them naked when they feel like it. And it fits a pattern that is a real fucking thing and it is widespread. And I want you to know that you're not alone 
and that you can heal from this. Um, it probably won't look like you expect healing to look like um, because it's usually awkward and nonlinear and two steps forward, one step back, and um, but it's worth it. And I really, really encourage you to find a therapist who deals with sexual trauma, especially um, covert sexual abuse, um, because it is as much of a mindfuck as overt sexual abuse is. I don't know. I just want to say that you're not alone, and my heart kind of breaks um, because... In many ways, I I know what it's like to have a parent that makes your skin crawl when they touch you and to be torn between wanting to have a relationship with that person and it fucking you up mentally and emotionally when you interact with them. And But it can be done. And sending you some, some love. Uh, and finally, this is a happy moment. This is filled out by uh, Amy, and she writes, I'm doing my undergraduate degree, and this year chose to take a thesis course. The entire year is devoted to writing one long research paper on whatever topic you're interested in. I chose a topic that I felt was important, but that was also safe. In the back of my mind, I knew what I really wanted to write about but was scared to talk about it with my classmates. I was raised in Scientology, and even though I have not participated in it since I was 13 or 14, it still took me until about two years ago to be able to talk about it openly with people. I will be 28 in May. Halfway through the year, I was so fed up with the topic I had chosen that even my professor could tell. They asked me if there was anything else I'd rather be writing about. I told them I thought it was too late in the year, but they assured me it wasn't. I opened up to them and told them what I really wanted to write about. They told me, well, you just lit up talking about that, so if you want to, I think you should write about Scientology. So I did. I began a long process of remembering things that I hadn't wanted to think about for a long time. Had long talks with my family members, some of whom are still Scientologists, and have spent hours and hours ruminating over moments that shaped me into who I am today. It's been a difficult few months, but ultimately extremely rewarding. This experience has made me feel so much more comfortable with myself, my past, and has given me a better understanding of who I am. Last week, I gave a presentation on my thesis to my classmates and my program faculty. My paper is about challenging the popular narratives that we are all so familiar with and coming to see Scientologists as more complex and more human than we are often led to see them. My work, though critical of the church, is about being compassionate towards the people who are committed to it and asking how we can change the conversation around Scientology to build understanding rather than further isolating the people who are already so isolated by their beliefs. I do this by analyzing moments from my past and trying to identify what I was going through and essentially offering a counter-narrative to the typical stories we hear about Scientology. 
I can honestly say that I am proud of myself and it feels wonderful. The really happy moment came a few nights ago when I got an email from my professor with a grade and feedback on my presentation. Their praise, support, and understanding of my work and how I presented it was so beautiful that it moved me to tears. I have never, ever felt more heard, seen, and actually appreciated by any other person in my life. They told me that I am brave and generous, that my project provided important emotional insights, and that my way of presenting it was captivating. I'm starting to cry again now just thinking about it. The happiest and most grateful tears. I love it when you guys give me one that's just so clearly the survey to end on. And um, and especially when somebody finds that silver lining, um, that silver lining moment is, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I do believe in some type of a higher power. And it's those silver lining moments when I feel a connection to something greater than myself. It's hard to put into words and I would probably cheapen it by trying to do it. But, um, that reading that, um, I could feel that, that energy. Um, it's like the sun coming out and man, when the sun comes out in our life, it's so fucking amazing because we were so convinced it would never come out again or it would only come out for other people that you know we'd always have a you know an umbrella over our head oh i'm so tired of this analogy right now <laughs> I am, i'm gonna bail right now before i sicken myself anymore how's that for uh uh just not not uh practicing what you preach. Anyway, um, I hope you got something out of this episode. And um, if you're out there and you're struggling, um, you are not alone. And what you're feeling is not unique. Um, Don't keep it inside. Find somebody safe to open up to. And if that first person isn't safe, find another person and keep going and you will eventually find people who can help you and that human connection makes life worth living in my opinion and uh, I'm glad I'm still here to do it I'm glad I I took that leap of faith and even if it was out of desperation um, and thanks for listening everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way